0: This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.
1: Okay, let us, let us begin. In this week's parsha, we have the Asaras and one of which is Losachmod. Losachmod means don't covet, but the Torah is very clear. Losachmod, don't covet the house of your friend, don't covet your, the wife of your friend, nor his servant, nor his ox, nor his chamor. Kol asheler echa, nothing of your friend should you covet, should you desire. And Ebenezer is very clear that losachma doesn't mean to take. Losachma means don't desire. You should not desire anything of your friend, and not his wife, not his house, not his field, not his servant, not his ox or his donkey. Kol or echa, anything that your neighbor has, you should not desire, you should not covet. And then the Ebenezer says something very, very compelling. He says, The main purpose of all the mitzvahs are to make the heart of man straight. He brings a proof. He says most of the mitzvahs are either zecher, either remembrances, or trying to train us to think properly. And he says, L'sachmod is one of those mitzvahs that is central to the Torah. Because again, what we're doing is perfecting ourselves. And he says, this is the eker the main purpose of all the mitzvahs, to make man's heart straight. Now, the Ebenezer here in Shemos brings an interesting point. He says, many people ask, how is it possible? The Torah can tell me not to do something. Don't hit somebody and don't take revenge. But how can the Torah tell me not to desire? Desire is a thought. Desire is a wish. How could the Torah command me not to do that? <clears throat> he says that is a fundamental error because, again, most of the mitzvahs of the Torah surround our thinking, our feeling, shaping the way we view things, the way we view the world. And he says this is basic to the Torah. And then he gives us an eights. He says, would you like to understand how to do it? I'll explain to you, he says. <clears throat> Imagine the following. Imagine you have a villager. And the princess comes by, entourage, the princess comes by. The villager sees the princess. She may be a beautiful woman. She may be very attractive. But the, the villager doesn't dream about the princess. She's so removed from him, so many leagues above him. He knows there's no way in the world he possibly could marry such a woman. So he doesn't fantasize. He doesn't dream about her because he knows she's so distant. She's so removed. So too explains David Ezra. If a person knows that a married woman is given by Hashem to that man, Hashem gave that house to that man and that car to that person, Hashem determines exactly what should happen in the world. When I understand that I won't desire another man's wife, why? Because I know it's impossible for me to have her. I can't possibly have his house. I can't possibly have his donkey or his shore or whatever it may be. Once I clearly understand that Hashem determines exactly what each person gets, I no longer will desire. It'll be like that villager. And the villager doesn't imagine to himself that I'm some kind of strange person. I'm gonna I'm gonna marry this woman. He doesn't imagine strange thoughts. It'll be like the villager saying to himself, imagine I'd wings to fly. He's not gonna think if I had wings to fly fly and think about it all day, as he doesn't imagine he's gonna have wings to fly, he doesn't think about marrying the princess, so too a firm person has to know that Hashem determines every outcome, and that man's wife is forbidden to me. I can't possibly marry because Hashem gave her to him, and therefore that will prevent me from desiring her. And that's how the Evan Ezra gives us, an Eitzah gives us advice how to conquer this thing called desire and how not to covet. Now, this Evan Ezra is quite difficult to understand because the most basic most powerful drive instinctually in a human is desire. Desire is powerful. And desire is a huge, huge force in the person. Yeah, what the Ebenezer seems to be saying is, use your bitachon and no longer you have desire. That sounds very difficult to understand. Bitachon is probably one of the weakest things. Halavai, if I work on bitachon, I work on bitachon, halavai, I get it to 20%. Somehow I think, I remember, yes, Hashem runs the world. But when I'm walking down the street, I could work on my bitachon, work on my bitachon. But when a thug jumps out, I'm scared because my bitachon, as much as I work on it, is very weak. How can the, the Ebenezer tell us, use Bitochen, which is a very weak force in the human, to conquer a powerful drive called desire? It sounds like he's putting a pop gun to fight against a huge army. It doesn't seem to make sense. So I'd like to see if we could understand what, in fact, this Evan Ezra is saying and understand a little bit better what he's teaching us. And to do that, let me share with you an observation throughout the ages. That which is considered beautiful has changed in different cultures. one type of beauty was considered magnificent and outstanding in other cultures different types of beauty and things have evolved and things have changed. So for instance, Many years ago, it used to be fat was considered very, very desirable. For most of history, mankind barely had enough to eat. And the only way that you could afford to have enough food, not just to subsist, but to actually put on extra weight was if you were very wealthy. They say in the in Europe, the 1700s, 1800s, if a corpulent man came into shul, a big, big man came into shul, people would say, ooh, a Busser, he must be a rich guy. Because the only way you could have enough money to actually be corpulent is you must have so much money that you could buy not just enough to eat, but actually more, and that was a sign of covet. And in those cultures, a large woman was considered desirable. In ancient Greece, large, large women, heavy women, was considered beautiful. In certain Pacific Island cultures, the larger the better. There's a story told about an African king who would fatten up his wives. Before he would marry the woman, she had to be so fat that she literally couldn't walk. Because in those cultures, large, big, heavy was considered desirable, was considered beautiful. If you'll note today, that's not quite the way it is when the Shadchan begins speaking using words like, she has such chayin, such a nice girl, you know he's using 15 euphemisms not to say the words that she's slightly overweight. Why? Because today thin is in. But you see, thin is not innately beautiful, nor is fat innately beautiful. These are cultured, and these are learnt, these are things that are in different times considered desirable, other times considered not desirable. But these types of things change. Let me share with you another example. For centuries, having dark skin, being tanned, was a sign of a worker. The peasants would work out in the field. All day long, the sun would beat on their face, and they had dark skins. As a result, for many, many centuries, women did everything in their power to keep out of the sun. In 18th century, fashionable European women would paint their skins lily-white. In the 19th century, women wore bonnets and carried parasols. Certainly in China and Japan, a regular part of a lady's dress was the parasol to keep the sun out of their skin because the workers, the peasants, were dark-skinned. The elite, the illustrious, were white-skinned, and that was considered a sign of beauty if you were lily white skin. Today, that's no longer the case. In the United States of America, there are 25,000 tanning salons, despite the known danger of exposure to these type of lights. And nevertheless, because tanned is considered beautiful, tanned is considered in. But you see, tanned or white skin is not innately beautiful. They're learnt, they're cultured. And you see, what you consider beautiful can be learnt, can be taught. And I'll give you an example of what I mean. Imagine you have a Chabad Shlich who brings his kids up somewhere in deep in China. And you have a boy who grew up in China and every single woman he ever saw had stick straight hair, slanty eyes, and was small of build. And that's where he grew up. Turns 18 and they send him to yeshiva in New York. Turns 20, 21, and they read him a Shidduch. And he goes on a date with his Woman, I mean, what's with the the blonde hair? And so large, and the eyes, well, they're not slanty at all. You see, when you grow up in a given way, that becomes desirable, that becomes beautiful. We learn it typically not even being conscious of it, but what others, others consider beautiful, we consider beautiful, and what the culture considers desirable, we consider desirable. And I believe that this is a tremendous, tremendous concept. You see, desire... Is innate. What we desire can be learned, and I'll give you a classic example. If a thirteen-year-old boy is attracted to a twelve-year-old girl, that's normal. But what happens if that thirteen-year-old boy grows up, and at forty-five years of age he's still attracted to twelve-year-old girls? We got a serious problem in our on our hands because even in a perverse society as and the world is today, we recognize that th- certain things are just not acceptable. But why? When he was 13, it was certainly normal for him to be attracted to a 12-year-old girl. Yeah, but your tastes are supposed to change, and you're supposed to grow up. And you see, desire is inborn, is innate. But what you desire can be learned, can be taught. And I believe that's exactly the esode that the Ebenezer is teaching us. But if you want to understand this so deeply, and let me expand it one more level. The Sefer Chinuch explains that there's a mitzvah assay for a couple when they first get married to spend time together. But he explains that the mitzvah is to spend as much time together during Shonar Shona as they possibly can. And the Sefer Chinuch explains why. He says because Hashem wants a couple to be happily married, to be bonded. And a couple is supposed to spend as much time together. The husband is supposed to be Simach as Ishto, make his wife happy. He's supposed to spend as much time as he can with her. Why? Because he's supposed to accustom himself to her as a woman. He's supposed to be Margulis tevi. He's supposed to become accustomed and cling to her, to view her. This is the way a woman holds a pen. This is the way a woman walks. And this is the way a woman holds a spoon. He's supposed to be training himself to see this is a woman to the extent that no one else is a woman. And as Sefer says, so far as it becomes his nature to view his wife as a woman and everyone else is just different. They're not women. This is a woman. And that's why he's supposed to spend as much time together as possible because he's trying to train yourself to view this woman as a woman and no one else is. And I believe that's exactly what the Ebenezer is teaching us. What so is what he's teaching us is that desire is inborn, but what you desire can be learned. You see, when you ruminate, when you think, you think and you think and you think and you think, you begin desiring it. If that villager one time fantasized about the princess, but he knew that it was impossible for him to marry her, he wouldn't have a deep desire for her. What creates the desire... Is thinking and thinking, let it play in your brain, play in your brain, play in your brain. And after a while, it creates a desire. And after a while, you train yourself that that is what I want. That is what I desire. And what the Ebenezer is teaching us is that desire is inborn. But what you desire can be changed, can be manipulated. And again, the Sefer Chinuch is going so far as to say that the first year you're supposed to train your eye to see this is a wife. This is a woman and no one else is to view any other woman as strange, as different, as, as foreign, because this is the way a woman walks. And this is the way a woman talks. This is a woman and no one else is. And this is a tremendous principle. If you'd like to be happily married, I had a fellow call me up. Rabbi, I, I need some help. What's up? I don't know. I'm, um, I don't find my wife attractive. Okay. How long are you married? About six months. Okay. Tell me when you were going out, did you find her attractive? Yeah. Now something didn't add up because if he's went out and found her attractive, he's married six months and now doesn't find her attractive. What's going on? So it didn't take me that long to dig in to find the great secret. And the great secret is <clears throat> this fellow was spending about an hour a day on his phone, looking at very inappropriate things. You see, when you're looking at other women with desire, you're training your eye to see them as beautiful, to see them as desirable. No longer is your wife going to seem so attractive. And one of the saddest parts of Western civilization is they've lost their sanity and they've lost this basic understanding. And when they put women up there on billboards and ads and wherever you see, wherever your eye is, and I'm talking even if you stay off the computer what they're doing is destroying happiness because a man is supposed to develop an eye for his wife, to view his wife as a woman, to find his wife attractive, to view her as a woman and no one else is. And is an expression that's so foreign to have eyes for your wife alone. I believe in our day and age, it's near impossible. Unless you live in yeshiva, unless you stay totally cloistered from the world, It's near impossible, because when you're looking at this one and that one and that one and this one, what you're doing is all day long training yourself in desire for other women. And that's not what the Torah wants. Hashem wants a man to be happily married, but to be happily married, you have to train your eye to see your wife as a woman, and no one else is. And one of the recommendations that I make to any young married man is keep a picture of your wife on your phone. So, that every time she calls, that picture comes up. First of all, it's a big compliment to your wife, but much more than that, you want to see that picture and you want to train your eye. I'm attracted to my wife. My wife is beautiful, but more than that, this is a woman and no one else is. Everything else is foreign. You'll never hear about a guy going to the Bronx Zoo and going over to the orangutan. Oh, I desire to be with the orangutan. It's an animal. You're supposed to train yourself to see your wife as a woman and anyone else as just strange. It's like not, but here's the point: you have to work on it. And especially in our day and age, you really, really have to work on it. You see, you can create this image in your mind. You can train yourself to desire your wife and only your wife, but you have to really work on it and you have to really focus on it. And every time you look at another woman with desire what you're doing is you're ruining that training. You have to train yourself to see your wife as beautiful and see your wife as desirable and train yourself that any other woman is foreign. Now, this concept is very basic to much of the Torah. I'll give you a couple of examples. First, we'll deal with close to this topic, and then we're going to expand it much further. I get a call from a fellow in England, a young married man who's got a serious problem. The problem is that there's another woman in the town. It's a very small town, and he can't help it. Wherever he goes, she's there, and he's attracted to her, and he wants to be happily married, but he, he just, wherever he goes, she's there, and he can't help but think about her, can't help but dwell on them, on that image, and he can't avoid her. What can he do? What could he do? So I told him, I have a little aitza for you. But you have to listen to me very carefully and you have to have a little bit of courage. If you'd like to buy your freedom, I have a ticket, but it's not an easy recipe. I told him, I want you to go on the Internet and I want you to Google corpse. I want you to find a picture of an ugly, decaying corpse. And I want you to print out that picture, preferably in color. And I want you to look at that picture and stare at that picture and let that picture be emblazoned in your mind. And every time the image of that woman comes up in your mind, I want you to revert back to this picture. And I want you to train your mind to see every time that woman comes up, you come back to the corpse and you're going to train yourself to see that woman as ugly, disgusting. And if you do this, you can retrain your mind. You see, what we fail to understand is that our mind is malleable. Much like my muscles can become stronger or weaker, either with exercise or atrophy without without exercise, the mind is malleable. You see, desire is inborn. You can't change desire, but what you desire can be changed. And for that fellow, the work was very difficult. Hopefully, Michelle comes quickly. We'll live in a very different world. And we won't have the kind of exposures. But a man should have eyes for his wife, but he has to train himself. But you see, you have to train yourself, especially in our day and age, because if you don't begin training yourself, what happens is very quickly you have desires for everything else but. And I'll give you a very sad example of this. There's a fellow who I spoke to for quite a while. When he was in yeshiva, he was holy, pure, totally learning, and barely ever thought about anything inappropriate. Okay. <clears throat> he gets married, and all of a sudden he has these strange thoughts. He finds himself attracted to men. Now that would not have been the problem. <clears throat> the problem is that he was obsessive. He had OCD and he would begin obsessing, 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 obsessing. <clears throat> I and mean, I'm thinking about man, maybe I'm gay, maybe I'm not gay, maybe I'm maybe I'm not. And he was think about it, think about it, think about it. And the more he would think about it, the more he desired it, and I said to him, "You have to understand what you 're doing you 're training your brain now to be attracted to men if you 'll stop the thinking and there are ways to stop obsessive thinking, if you stop that thinking, you won 't be gay. But if you allow yourself to ruminate and ruminate and ruminate, in any case he wasn't <clears throat> didn't want to work on the o c d didn't <laughs> listen to me." And within a very short amount of time, he no longer had any attraction to his wife and was totally gay. But here's the strange part. When he was in yeshiva, he didn't think about women or men or anything. And he was a pure holy Jew learning and growing. But it was when he got married and then these issues started coming up and he said to himself, maybe I'm attracted to men. In the beginning, he wasn't. Barely, maybe a little bit. But he began ruminating and ruminating, thinking and thinking. And you are quite capable of creating changes in your brain. Because again, desire is inborn, but what you desire is malleable, can be changed. And he trained himself to become attracted to this. You can become attracted to very large women. You can become attracted to very thin women. You can become attracted to tanned women. You can become attracted to white-skinned women. You can become attracted to men if you let your mind dwell on that and you ruminate and you ruminate. And this is a person who unfortunately caused himself tremendous, tremendous problems. But you see, I think the concept that the Ebenezer is teaching us is a huge concept. And that is we could shape our thinking. And we could shape the way we think. And we could shape the way we feel. Because what we desire is something that is, can be learned. But you see, what the Ebenezer is saying is not just limited to this small issue of desire. The is teaching us is a huge concept for life because as he says to us, Rove mitzvahs, most mitzvahs, the main purpose of all the mitzvahs are the yasholeva adam to straighten out the heart of man. And what he's saying in plain language is most of our avodah Hashem is exactly in that area to straighten out my thinking. And my friends, I'd like to share with you that while it's most of our avodah Hashem, it's surely most of mental health. There's a very important book written by Dr. Burns called Feeling Good. Dr. Burns was the first in terms of cognitive therapy. It was written in the 80s, and he was really the revolutionary book. <clears throat> Certainly, he was the one who popularized the concepts of cognitive therapy, and he makes three very important points in his book. The book teaches you how to deal with depression, and he says <clears throat> point number one, your thoughts shape your moods the way you think shapes how you feel if you're constantly thinking negative thoughts eventually you're going to feel negatively then he says point number two depression is caused by pervasively negative thoughts and when you think you're a loser when you think things are bad when you think everything is going to come down if you think those thoughts all day every day all the time guess what those negative thoughts are going to make you depressed but it's the third point that he makes that's the most telling. He says almost always these thoughts are grossly distorted; they're twisted. And he gives some examples. He gives an example of a successful salesman who comes to the doctor and says, "Everything is bad. It's lousy. Everything happens bad to me." And he says, "Look, just today, I was driving and and the, the bird dropped." excrement on my windshield. It always happens to me. The birds are always, always dropping stuff on my windshield. So Dr. Burns asked him, tell me, has this happened before? Not really. How many years have you been selling? 20 years. One time in 20 years, the bird dropped stuff on his windshield, but in his mind, it's always happening. Always happening to me. He gives another example. A, A young woman was in school and she took a test and she figured that she got 17 questions out of 100 wrong. She studied well, and she was a very bright student, and she really did a very careful job studying for this, but she figured that she got 17 out of 100 wrong, and she realized she's going to fail out of school. She got back to grade 83. Professor writes, I'm giving you an A+. Never has a student gotten so many questions correct on any of my tests in this course. You see, if all you think are negative thoughts, you're going to be depressed. But almost invariably, those negative thoughts are distorted. And if you find a person who's depressed, you'll find those three traits. Number one, the thoughts create the mood. Number two, it's the pervasive negative thoughts. But those thoughts are almost always distorted. They're twisted. And if you've ever spoken to a person who's depressed, you'll find that it's twisted thinking. It's perverse thinking. And this is the great Yisod. We are capable and obligated to train ourselves to control our thoughts. And probably one of the most important things that a human being has to learn if they want to be happy in life is to recognize that not every thought that crosses my mind is correct. And not every thought that crosses my mind is me thinking it. If you want a classic example, I'll make it very clear. Imagine you're a fine bentorah. And you're learning. You're paying attention, and you're learning. You're in the middle of a ptosis, and suddenly an image comes into your brain. Get out of here. You're back to ptosis. And then the image comes back into your brain. Get out of here, and you're back to the ptosis. Now, who brought that image into your brain? You don't want that image. You don't want to think about that image. You don't want it there. So how did it, how did it get there? You did not want to think about it. You try to get rid of it, and you're fighting against it. So how did it get there? And the answer is you didn't bring it there. You see, I'm the guy inside, but I'm in this body, and this body is a Nefesh Bahami, and this Nefesh Bahami, this animal soul, has desires and needs and appetites. But you see, who gets control of the brain is a very, very questionable issue. If you like to fundamentally understand yourself, you have to imagine the following scene. <clears throat> imagine that we're at a home, and there are five school-age kids eating dinner. And as soon as dinner's over, all five children rush over to the one family computer. Now, depending on which child gets control of the keyboard, it will determine what the screen shows. But all five children are watching the keyboard. So if one child wants to do his math homework, it's going to be Excel. Another child wants to play a game, it's going to be a game. Another child wants to do social studies, it might be Word. But whichever child has control of the keyboard is going to determine what the screen shows. But all five children are watching that screen. That's my conscious mind. Sometimes I control my conscious mind. And sometimes my Nevesh bahami, my animal soul controls it. Sometimes it's anger. Sometimes it's jealousy. Sometimes it's anxiety. Sometimes it's depression. But it's not always I. Not every thought that crosses my conscious mind is me. And not every thought that crosses my conscious mind is correct. And learning to identify those gross distortions and learning to identify those mistruths are a huge part of your Avodah Hashem. But you see, it's not just depression. It's any area of mental health. If it's anxiety, if it's OCD, if it's even something as simple as jealousy. I'm so jealous. Her kids are always so well-dressed. And she always, her shade was always perfect. And her home is always so nice. I just can't get over. And she's my sister. And it, kill, and it kills me. It kills me. That's exactly when it's time to get control of your thinking. Because your thoughts create your moods, which create the way you feel. There's a bumper sticker that used to be a little bit more popular, but it begs being brought back out. The schmooze car magnet, the schmooze bumper sticker. On it is a phrase, because the way you think, Becomes the way you feel becomes who you are forever, because our thoughts create the way we feel, and the way we feel becomes us and who we are we are forever. And what the Ebenezer is teaching us is that, Eker of all the mitzvahs, the main point of all the mitzvahs is Le Leva Adam. If I have desire for my neighbor's car, his house, his donkey, I have to strain. How can I strain up my thoughts? Is he drove up in a Lamborghini? It's It's gorgeous. I love it. I I just, I need it. I have to have it. I have to have it is a thought that crosses my mind, and I can change that thought. You see, I like nice things, but it doesn't mean I like your nice things. And if I'm jealous, what it really means is I'm competing with you. I'm competing with you, and you just got ahead of me. But once I recognize that we're really not in competition, Hashem determines exactly what we're going to get. And besides, we're not measured by how much money we have or how fancy our house is, fancy our car. When I straighten out my thinking, no longer do I have that jealous attitude. and No longer do I covet that object. But I have to get control of my conscious mind. The thoughts across my conscious mind shape who I am. But here's the problem. The problem is the thoughts happen all day, every day. If you count the amount of thoughts that cross your conscious mind, it's in the hundreds, in the thousands, sometimes maybe even more. And you have to be alert. You have to be aware. And any time there's any discomfort within you, you have to ask yourself what is causing it. And most of the time, it's thoughts. And most of the time, it's thoughts that create feelings, that creates ways of feeling And the ability to restructure your thinking, to restructure your mind, is something you can do if you learn to take control of your thoughts. And now it's time for the great secret. So how do I do it? How do I do it? I don't want to be jealous. I don't want to be angry. I don't want to be depressed. I don't want to have these problems. I want to be happy. I want to serve Hashem properly. And this is the great secret. After you recognize that not every thought that crosses my conscious mind is me, And not every thought that crosses my conscious mind is correct. That's when you have to start talking to yourself. Whatever your weakness is, you have to begin talking to yourself the exact opposite story. So if you look at yourself like a loser, I'm a loser and I'm worthless. You have to write down the 10 things you do well. And each day for 10 minutes, you have to say it. I do this successfully and I learn well and I dominate and I'm a good husband. And and you have to say it, but you have to say it out loud. You're not going to say it out loud. First of all, by the way, you have to say it out loud because that's the only way you're going to believe it. The first time you say these words out loud, you're going to say, come on, it's not true. When you feel depressed and you feel worthless and you say, I'm worthy. Hashem created me. Hashem gave me tremendous and Hashem gave me the ability. Come on, who are you kidding? I'm a worthless slime. And it feels like you're lying to yourself. And you have to say these words again and again and again over and over. And you have to do it on a regular basis. Now, how do I know this works? <laughs> because that's learning musar. I've been in this business for over 40 years now. And I like to say that I am in intense therapy, daily therapy. I spend a half hour to an hour every single day in therapy, talking to myself. When you're learning musar, what are you doing? <clears throat> you're telling yourself, straighten out your brain. What are you jealous? Why are you angry? <clears throat> what do you mean you have to you say? Because have questions. Where's your amuna? You work on it. Hashem is here. Think about that. Dwell on that. And you talk to yourself again and again and again. But you have to literally do that. You have to talk to yourself. And one of the best things you can do is go for a long walk and talk to yourself. If you're working on anger, you work on jealousy. If you're working on desire, you have to train your brain the other way. Some things are easier. Some things are more difficult. Depression is one of the easiest ones. Why? Because it's twisted thinking that's causing it. And you recognize it as twisted thinking if you're honest with yourself. But when you're honest with yourself, it still feels that I'm a loser. I still feel worthless. And that's when you have to write down your strengths and write down your accomplishments and you have to say them to yourself for 10 minutes straight. You say it again and again and again and again. I'm worthy. I'm creating the image of Hashem. Hashem loves me. Hashem wants me to succeed. I'm worth it. I'm worthy. And you say it again and again and again, and you slowly make a little Rosham. And the next day you come back to it, and you say the same words again, and the next day again, and next day again. And if you say this for 30 days straight, I almost guarantee you're going to feel a lifting of your spirit. It won't happen in one session, but you do it for 30 days, 10 minutes a day, again and again, you say it to yourself, you're programming your brain. You see, the conscious thoughts across our mind shapes the way I feel. And much like the Ebenezer explains that the villager isn't going to come to desire that princess because it's impossible. I I'm can't possibly marry her. I can't possibly have her. So he doesn't ruminate. He doesn't think and think and think about her. So maybe he fantasizes, one day may I could dream about it. But he's not a fool. He doesn't dream to have wings to fly. He doesn't ruminate. Because he doesn't ruminate on it, it doesn't become a desire, and it doesn't become a part of him. This is a tremendous principle for many, many areas in life. The first principle is exactly what the Eviners is teaching us. Losachmor is a losa say in the Torah. I'm not allowed to desire my friend's wife, his car, his house, whatever he has, his position, his honor. He learns better than me. He has better talents than I. He's humorous. He's funny. I can't desire it, but, but I, who, who doesn't want to, have to do that? Who doesn't want to, have to be funny? Who doesn't want to have a good sense of humor? Who doesn't want to be charismatic? Who doesn't want to be intelligent? Training myself that Hashem gave me what I need, and Hashem gave me exactly what I need to accomplish my mission in life, requires taking control of my thinking. What the Ebenezer is teaching us is that desire is inborn, and what you desire is learned. As in many cultures, being very heavy was once upon a time desirable. No longer is that desirable. Once upon a time, dark skin was considered ugly. Now it's the opposite. If you grew up in China, you'd look at slanty eyes and very thin build, black hair as attractive and anything else is not attractive. Because again, desire is inborn, but what you desire is learned. When you get married, you're supposed to train your eyes to be attracted to your spouse. That goes from men much more than women, but it goes from women as well. And by the way, if you ever have a situation where you find a woman who's unhappily married and she starts looking around, this guy earns more money and this guy is clever, and this guy's more sensitive, and she's not happy, what she's doing is exactly this point. She's training her mind in desiring other things. I heard my Rebbe DeShivetzal say many a times, you have to train yourself, my thing is the best thing in the world. Shiva used to say, you have to train yourself, my car. My car is the best car in the world. My car is just a simple Toyota Camry. No, it's the best car in the world. It's the one Hashem wants me to have, and it's a perfect one for me. And you have to train yourself to think those thoughts. And when you do that, you're satisfied, you're happy with what you have. And when you work on this, you have a deep sense of satisfaction because the brain is something that's malleable. You can't change your desires, but you can change what you desire. And this is a yasod for life. It's a sowed for mental health. It's a sowed for happiness in life. And it's certainly a yasod for being happily married. And I want to close with one last observation. I had a m- muscle that I used to use as a young base guy. That I find very, very powerful. I came from a what we call a modern Orthodox background. And I came to Yeshiva, I guess, when I was about 19. And I remember clearly one time some of my friends from the old days coming and saying, Shaif, what are you wasting your time for? Sitting there crutching over Gemara, come on, why aren't you doing? Come on, we're in school, we're I'm gonna be a doctor, my friends be a lawyer. Come on, what are you wasting your time for? Now, I wasn't much affected by it, to be honest with you, because I was very, very happy with doing what I was doing. But one Musa Seder, I began thinking of the following mushle. I imagined that I and my Chavusa are sitting in a sandbox. But instead of a sandbox filled with sand, it was filled with diamonds two-carat diamonds, four-carat diamonds. I pick up one, I show it to him. He says, oh, it's beautiful. Oh, this one I take out and put in my pocket. Oh, this one has a slight, slight flaw. I'll leave that one. They see, oh, it has a beauty. Take this one, take this one. we was sitting there each examining the different diamonds, taking this one, taking that one. And one of my friends from the old country comes by, and says to me, what are you guys wasting your time in that sandbox with those tin little stones? This is what you need. And he holds up a five-pound rock. Look at this is a big rock. You look at those little tin diamonds. You want this earth stone. This is what you want, not those little diamonds. Look at them, Nar. <laughs> You're offering me earth stones when we're dealing with diamonds that are worth thousands, tens of thousands of dollars? The reason why that muscle was very penetrating to me was because it defined the value system. You see, my friends from the old country, when they came and said, we're planning to make lots of money, I'm going to be a lawyer, I'm going to be a doctor, you're wasting your time learning Gemara. Again, it didn't affect me that much, but I think the muscle defined it very well. You guys are playing with earth, you're playing with earth rock, you're playing with, I'm dealing with diamonds. But you see, the muscle defined for me, in very clear terms, exactly what I was feeling. And when you dwell on that muscle, and you think about it, and you dwell and you dwell, you change the way you think. And what I was doing was trying to shape my thinking. And what the Azzer is teaching us is that your mind is malleable. You have to train it. You have to take control of your mind, and you have to recognize that the thoughts of your mind shape who you are. Who you are for eternity is based on the thoughts, because the thoughts become the feelings, the feelings become who you are, and you can take control. You have to work the system. You have to use it. You have to recognize how the human being is shaped. When you do that, Hashem helps, and you're able to reach great, great heights. And now I'd like to open the floor to questions, hopefully applicable questions on this topic, because, again, I think it's a very, very important topic. And um, let me start. Please feel free. You can raise your hand. If you have a question, you can raise your hand. Um, And I'd much rather take the questions live. Alicia, you have the floor. Go for it. I'm a shaper. Just wanted to know if you recommend any specific
0: thoughts, like general thoughts that every uh, person aspiring to grow and as a Jewish boy guy. <laughs>
1: um, so the problem is there's so many thoughts that you have to have. <clears throat> One is happiness, being, stopping, being joyful with what you have, with your situation, <clears throat> with your capacity. Um, you know, really you, you, what you're trying to do is shape the way you feel. Now, it depends what your weaknesses are, what your strengths are, what you're going to work on. So, for instance, if right now you're feeling, um, you know, let's say, let's work on the thing of being satisfied with what I have. Hashem loves me, and Hashem gave me exactly what I need, exactly the talents, exactly the abilities. Hashem put me in the exact generation for me, and you say those words again and again and again until you actually begin feeling them, believing them, and then there's a happiness with my situation. You should feel, I, I want to say some strange words. I've often felt this. Um, I don't claim to be a tzaddik, believe me, but I believe that I lived a charmed existence. I used to say until I was 35, I didn't know what suffering meant. Until my mother passed away, I didn't really know any suffering b'chlal. Now, don't get me wrong, I probably went through the same childhood that everyone else did, but I don't know why. <clears throat> From the time I got to Yeshiva, I was learning Musa, and, and I had this feeling that I lived a charmed existence. Everything that happened was my best. Hashem was ushering me. Hashem was bringing me forth. Now, by the way, the single most important book that you should be reading on a regular basis is your autobiography. When you write down those events of your life, and, you know, we all have Hashem say, oh, look at this, Hashem was there, Hashem help me. And you write it down and you write down the next event, the next event, and you read through it and you begin sh- understanding. Hashem is there. Hashem helped me. Hashem was there. And you begin reading it again and again and again, and you change your attitude. It's not just that you grow in a Muna, Obviously, you get to see Hashem there. <clears throat> it's much more clear. But you see that Hashem is guiding you, directing you. You begin to see Hashem is taking you along the path. Obviously, <clears throat> Hashem has my best interests in mind. Hashem is leading me. And it changes your approach to life. You feel happy. and <clears throat> You feel satisfied. You feel content you know that Hashem is leading in the right direction. So again, it really depends on what you, the issues that you're dealing with are. Um, Alicia, I don't know if I, did I answer the question? Yes, yes, it was a, it was an okay. amazing answer, and actually, I I uh, was very grateful today, and I literally felt like not just today, but like different times in my life. I'm really living, living a muna or whatever, and I'm grateful about a specific thing
0: or a bunch of things. I'm literally high and and charmed. Now,
1: do, beautiful. Now write it down and feel it and say it again and again and again and again until you keep it because, again, that's the goal, to keep it and have it become permanently part of you. All right. Good. Okay. Very good. Okay. Okay. Let me see. We got you over here. Um, we have the floor. Um, I think you have the floor. <laughs> Hi, shalom aleichem. How are you? Hi,
0: shalom aleichem. It reminded me of the Rashiva had more than one He We talk about it, even on negative, negative things, not to fo- be too strong. He would say like, "Go, that's disgusting. That's disgusting, that's disgusting. Oh, it's disgusting. Oh, let me go check it out." Like even to hyper focus too much on Uh-oh. the negative, like you could end up bringing your attention to focus on it because you're going to keep going to keep on saying so strong. Like, it's that's terrible, terrible. And then all of a sudden, go, it's terrible. Let me go check it out. Like you know, like. And I remember she would like animated through the schmooze. He would like talk about it uh, right. about this concept right. as far as it goes. Right. The other thing I was was the, the, to me I found is 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 good is that uh, mentioned about uh, as far as putting a picture of your wife on the phone, etc. So um, you know part of the issue of like having let's say a picture of your wife on your desk at, from work, whatever else it is, is a, just a single picture. You're, you don't focus on it because you see it there all the time. So uh, Google Photos happens to be great because besides storing all the pictures, it creates these collages of pictures. So right, created a collage right. of 15 pictures of my wife. So I took this picture of the collage 15 and I stuck it on my desktop of my computer. It's the background of the desktop of my computer. Okay. So, so, so that it has a picture of me with my wife with my kids, my wife with me. So number one, it's, it's happy pictures of me and my family. So that's always reminding. But not only that, your mind wanders. So you see this picture. This picture has my wife. This picture also has my wife. This is my wife with her mother. This is my wife with, but every one of these 15 little pictures has my wife on it. So, like, it's even when your mind wanders, so to speak, she's everywhere. She's there. And my wife walked into my office and she said to me, Why do you have these pictures of me on your desktop? You see me all the time anyway. So I just smiled and I didn't say anything.
1: beautiful but yeah it's, so, just, it's, it's so. told to listen to the schmooze right yeah. exactly so the second hmm. thing is i yes. know
0: it's not popular it's not yeshivish but at one point in my marriage i started to wear a, a wedding ring i said when you're ring. number one it announces to the world particularly the guy I'm out there hey i'm taken stay away ah. but even for yourself even for yourself it, it, to me it's always a reminder there you look at your hands i'm 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 taken i'm i'm married i'm not and you know it's you feel it on your hand you feel it you, you feel this it's like it's it's almost like tzitzis to some extent where it's like that re- kind of reminder i'm a married man and I, I hear. I hear. different people different but for me i found that you know it's maybe not popular in yeshivish but i wear a wedding ring it's another way it's like it's announcing to the world and to myself i'm a married man this is this is who i am and uh
1: Good. Excellent. Good. I think it's very good. Excellent. Okay, very good. Thank you. Thanks. Okay, please feel free to ask a question. Um, um, Okay, something has helped me in the past. When I see an attractive woman pass by, I tell myself, yes, she's attractive, and a world of no rules, of course, is what I can do. But I'm an Evid Hashem, and Hashem says no, and so she's not for me to desire. Good. Whatever works is great. Um, now, for men, you know, desire, I, I often like to be very graphic, and I like to tell guys to just imagine a very attractive young woman, right? She's 25, right? Uh, what's she, what is she going to look like when she's 85? Just take that same image and just fast forward 60 years or 80 years, put her in the grave, a little decay in the body, you know. And you have to be vivid in your imagination because, you see, your mind is going to be very vivid. If you don't control your mind, it's going to do a lot of coloring And a lot of painting pictures, you have to take control of your mind and paint the pictures that you want. So, again, you know, just imagine this woman at 85, how attractive is she going to be? Whatever works. But, again, if that works for you, that's great. Um, Okay. Are you saying there isn't such a thing as clinical depression that has a physical chemical cause? Um, I don't recall saying it. Um, No, I don't recall saying it. I'm certainly not saying it. There certainly is a chemical piece to depression, uh, and there certainly is a predisposition of some people to depression. Um, read read the, the book. I, I I highly recommend anyone who deals with depression read Doctor Burns' book. Um, there's no question that an element of depression is the negative thinking. Now, what what's the chicken and what's the egg? Meaning, why is it that some people have an optimistic bias and some people have a have a very negative view of things. Part of that could be chemical. Part of that could be hardwired. Part of that could be just personality. Um, there's no question that there are chemical effects, and no question that chemicals affect things. There are also many times when clinical depression is to be, you know, medication is very well recommended. Um, but at the same point, no matter how much it's caused by chemicals. There's much of the pervasive negative thinking that makes things much, much worse. And the more you control your thinking, the better you are at getting out of it. So is there a chemical component? There is, and and with some people more and some people less. But regardless, the cognitive thinking greatly impacts your moods, greatly impacts the way you feel. So again, some people have a much greater disposition towards depression. Some people have a very optimistic approach that's either given a sunny personality or gloomy but recognizing that if i have a gloomy personality i have my thoughts are often what's causing my moods my thoughts of the pervasive negativity and it's bad it's going to be bad and it's going to always be bad and everything's possibly is going to be bad you have to recognize those thoughts and reverse them and the way you reverse them is thinking positive thoughts and you say to yourself somehow i managed to survive till now and somehow Hashem has managed to bail me out each time, and things will work out well. But I know they're going to be bad. No, they're not. They're going to be good. And the negative thinking that your mind naturally gravitates to, and you have to do the exact opposite of it and train yourself to think positively. But again, this is not. I am not a. Um, this is not a mental health class, and this is not advice for people with mental health issues. I highly recommend you see a professional. Um, I am telling you something. Again, the book is, is very, it's a very, very, I, I highly recommend the book for for anyone, certainly if you deal with depression. Um, regardless, it's considered very, very accepted in the field. Um, and it, But either way, it definitely is a big component of the, the thinking. Um, what is a wife to do if she suspects that her husband is looking at inappropriate things on the Internet? Okay, so this unfortunately is a big problem in our day and age, and my answer is don't get involved. What am I going to tell you? It's not, you know, it's a very, very hard thing. Um, It's a very hard thing, and the worst thing in the world is for you to become a policeman for your husband, because that is a guaranteed way to wreck your marriage. You have to remember something, that his looking at inappropriate things on the Internet is between him and Hashem. And it's his problem. Unfortunately, it has nothing to do with you. You know, I deal with this all the time to the extent that I recorded an hour long share that's on Guard Your Eyes. I had so many times that women would come to me when they found out that the husband was on pornography sites and viewing inappropriate things. And I got literally, I got so tired of saying the same thing that I recorded a share and I put it on Guard Your Eyes. And the basic Thompson's advice, the basic synopsis is one point. His issue is between him and God. It's not infidelity. It's not that he's not happy with you. It's not that he's not satisfied with you. It's not even that he doesn't love you. He has a problem. He has to deal with it. And it is a problem, but it's not between you and him. Now, that may sound strange because he's supposed to have eyes to me and me alone. I know in a perfect world he would, but unfortunately the world we live in doesn't work that way. And if a guy does something outside the marriage, that's infidelity. Looking at things, what am I going to tell you? It may be, it's very hard to hear, and it's very <clears throat> hurtful, but it really has nothing to do between you and he, it's between him and God. Bottom line is, it's, you know, it's something you have every right to talk to your husband about, but do not under any condition. Don't be his policeman, don't be his rebbe, don't be his shomer. <clears throat> if you feel that you don't, you don't feel secure, you have every right to talk to him, to discuss it. And you have every right to ask them to do things like put on filters, but you discuss it once, twice, and then it's, you got to let it go. You have to, because you can't become, it becomes an extremely negative force in your marriage. Um, Okay. Okay. uh, At which point should a person stop telling himself my spouse is best for me? Okay, before you get there, you go and purchase a copy of the 10 Really Dumb Mistakes that Very Smart Couples Make, because every time I've heard it, every time I've heard the wife say, my husband's abusive, or the husband says, my wife is controlling, I then say to him, let's look at it from your perspective, and I hear what you're saying, but let's look at what you're doing to contribute to the mess. And I think you'll find, invariably, there's plenty of blame to go around. Get a copy of the 10 Really Dumb Mistakes and learn what it is that you're doing to contribute to the problem. And I guarantee if you change your spouse, who's such a problem is going to change. I can't tell you how many times wives feel their husband's checked out and he's unemotional and he's not there. And and they stop nagging him and suddenly he starts becoming a much nicer guy. And if you think I'm being cruel and callous, it's only because I've been there time after time after time. Please grab a copy of the 10 Really Dumb Mistakes the Very Smart Couples Make. And you get it on the schmooze.com, T-H-E-S-H-M-U-Z.com. And you'll see, and if your focus is one thing, I want to improve my marriage, I guarantee if you read the book and ask yourself throughout the book one thing, <clears throat> what am I doing that's contributing to the mess? And how can I improve my marriage? I guarantee you're going to have a much ma- better marriage because it always takes two to tangle, And it's always... My spouse is the worst. My husband's the meanest. My wife is the... Me- and there's always both parties involved. Now, invariably, you're only going to see your pain, and you're only going to see your spouse as the problem, because that's human nature. But if you go through the book looking with one eye, what can I do to improve my marriage? I guarantee things will change. So that's my general advice. I think it's a, a good point. Um If you feel... Okay, Uh, let let me read this point here, and let's see. There seems to be a point of difference between psychology and Musser. Psychology explains behavior and assumes you don't have control, and Musser explains behavior and how to use it to control. So one of the big issues that really between psychology and Musser is this idea of you're not responsible for your thoughts. Pop psychology very much now says you're responsible for your behaviors, but you're not responsible for your thoughts. Unfortunately, the sad reality is that if you don't control your thoughts, you're never going to control your behaviors. But more than that, your thoughts are who you are. Your thoughts are your attitudes. Your thoughts are your feelings. And Your thoughts are the person you're going to be for eternity. If you don't learn to control your thoughts, you're not controlling yourself. You're not growing. You're not changing. You're not going to become the person you were meant to be. And the only way you can do it is if you learn to take control of your thoughts. It's basic to mental health. It's basic to all of Hashem. And again, as the Ebenezer says, it's eker of all the mitzvahs. Eker <clears throat> of all the mitzvahs, <clears throat> to strain out my heart. I'm supposed to be kind and sensitive and caring and being a giving person, but I'm not. I'm a selfish aloud. Okay, let's get to work. But how can I change my very nature? That's exactly what all the mitzvahs are. <clears throat> all the mitzvahs are tikkun amidos. supposed to work on not being angry, not being jealous, this is working and not being impatient, but how do I do that? I feel this way. This is the way I feel. The answer is I have to control my thoughts. And when you control your thoughts, you control the way you feel, you become a different person. But it all starts with thinking. It all starts controlling your thoughts. And often it means talking to yourself. Okay, thank you very much for joining. I hope you'll join us next week. And have a good Shabbos. Thank you.